We continue tonight with uh, our march through the book of Ephesians in this series called The Brave New World. And tonight we're starting with chapter 2, verse 11, up to the end of chapter 2, dipping in a little bit to the beginning of chapter 3. And what we're at is Paul's reflection on the centrality of the grace of God in the brave new world that God is making. A world that we all hope for and long for. Uh, this audacious claim of Paul to the, to the churches in Western Asia Minor. In the last couple of sermons and messages, we've looked at a few questions. The first one was, where are we now? And we talked about the fact that humanity, at the apex of creation, and now at the apex of the new creation, has been restored and resurrected to the place that was rightfully ours, in the Messiah, in Jesus, who is over all authority, rule, and power. So we said, where are we now? And then last, the, the last time, that was two times ago, we came back and looked at the questions of, okay, so where did we come from? And how did we get to where we are? And we saw that we came from a place of hopelessness, of death, um, of alienation, and that we were brought from that place of nothingness to this place of beauty and life by virtue of the grace of God and nothing else. That God acted, that God moved, that God spoke into our desperate situation and gave us life. And at the center of this whole faith that we proclaim at Church of the Cross, that's proclaimed in this word, is the fact that God is a gracious God whose grace overcomes our spiritual death and brings us to new life. That God breathes his resurrection life into us. And what I want to do is come back now to these, the second half of, of chapter 2 and look again at that question of where are we now. We talked about we, we're the resurrected and restored humanity. And to say that part of being restored, an important part of being restored, are the words that come out in this section of Ephesians. Reconciliation and peace. That a part of restoration is reconciliation. A part of the new humanity is peace, is an end to the conflict. Now we all know a world, they don't have to say much about this, just mention um, the geopolitical realities of Iraq and Syria and the Ukraine and Afghanistan. And we know a world that lacks peace. We know a world that, that lacks harmony. A world where conflict and violence and oppression are the, the, the rule of the day. And it's been that way from the beginning. Go back to the very beginning. After Adam and Eve fell in the garden, what happens? Cain envies his brother Abel and slays him, murders him. And then Lamech continues that tradition of violence in Genesis 4. And on and on and on we have this history of violence, oppression, of a lack of peace and division. And we know it deeply on the personal level, not just the historical or the geopolitical level, but on our personal level in broken relationships, in divisions, in unspoken coldness in the workplace with different people. We get a world without peace. We live every day in the middle of that world. What God says, or what Paul says about God's plan in chapter 1 is beautiful. He says that the, this is the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus the Messiah. Things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, the purposes of God, the heart of God for his world is not division and it's not brokenness and it's not uh, animosity and violence. It's actually peace. Shalom. This vision of a world where there is blessing on every level, particularly the relational level. 
That's God's longing. And what we get this glimpse of in in chapter 1 is that God is going to make this new world of peace and shalom in the Messiah. That in Jesus, he's going to reconcile everything in heaven and everything on earth. And there will be peace. There will be shalom. So it's no surprise then as Paul begins to unpack the work of God in Jesus that he gets to this section in Ephesians 2 and begins to talk about how that work of bringing things together occurs with those of us who are at the apex of creation, humanity. And so he begins to unpack the reality of reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, of bringing together the world in the Messiah, happening first in the human realm. And that's where we go from here. This is the heart you know of God from the beginning, and we see it come out again and again in the Old Testament This title for the one who would come and bring about a new creation. The Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9-6. Who in Isaiah 52-7 publishes peace with the message declaring your God reigns. And then in a passage, a passage that's alluded to in Ephesians 2 in Isaiah 57. He brings peace and speaks peace to those who are near and to those who are far off. And then in Micah 5-5 again alluded to in this passage. He shall be their peace. This one from Bethlehem who would bring about the long-awaited hope of Israel. A hope for peace to come into the world. So we're going to look at three things briefly. The dimensions of the brokenness that we see in Ephesians 2. The mechanism of its fixing. And then the result of this kind of reconciliation and peace. There's a horizontal dimension and a vertical dimension to the brokenness in the world. The horizontal dimension comes first. And Paul speaks, and by the way, there is a similarity between 11 through 22 and 1 through 10. In that Paul depicts the the devastating picture of where humankind, and in this case he's speaking particularly to Gentile Christians. To those who are outside the Jewish nation, outside the promises, outside the covenant. And he gives them this picture of how devastating their life was and how hopeless it was. You were without hope, having no hope, verse 12, and without God. And then he says, but now, just like we saw last week, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And so there's the same kind of pattern, the the darkness, but now God has done something. And then the result, last week it was we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And this week, as we'll get to at the end, that we are now being built together into a household and a temple. So this is the same kind of structure that Paul's using again here. The horizontal dimension of brokenness, of, of hostility, is that between Jew and Gentile. And we've got to understand something again of the historical context to get what he's really saying in this text. Because we, though we do still live in a world with Jews and Gentiles, in a sense, the Jewish people and everybody else, we don't experience it in the same way that they did in the first century, at least through a Jewish mindset. And Paul was a faithful Jew. And Jesus was a faithful Jew. The people of Israel. There were these dimensions of the hostility between the Jewish nation, the people of God, the chosen ones, and everybody else referred to as Gentiles. And we see those in a few ways. We see it, one, in the cultural practice of the Jewish people. Uh, Marked out by Torah, by the law. These practices and customs that they got through the word, the Old Testament, but also through the oral tradition that had developed around that word. 
which in Paul's day were focused primarily on demarcating the Jewish people from everybody else. That is, becoming a point of delineation between. And so the practices such as the food laws, which demanded that they didn't sit down at the table with anybody who wasn't a clean Jew. And therefore they couldn't share table fellowship with Gentiles. The Sabbath, which was a marker in time of the distinctiveness of this people, that they held to uh, tooth and nail, that set them apart. And then the great symbol of the temple. And Paul alludes to the dividing wall of hostility, and scholars conjecture about this, but in the temple courts, in Jerusalem, in Herod's temple, the second temple of the Jewish people in the first century, there was a wall that divided the court of the Gentiles, which was outside from the inner courts where the Jews were allowed to enter, to get closer to the presence of God. And on that wall, all around this wall of the outer court, there were signs that, we read this in Josephus, that warned the Gentiles that if they entered, it would lead to death. This dividing wall, physically represented in the temple courts. And it led to a kind of superiority complex of sorts to where typical in terms of the daily life of first century Jewish people there would be a prayer God I thank you that you've made me a Jew and not a Gentile hostility a division a distinction now there's a critique of this that in the midst of this first century milieu that the Jewish people had lost sight of the scope of God's heart for his world, that went beyond their nation to the world. In Isaiah 49, he says, it's too light of thing that you should just be my servant to my people. I'll make you a light to the Gentiles. That always God's call on the people of God, God's call on Abraham in Genesis 12, was in response to the fall of Adam. It was always not Israel for Israel's sake, but Israel for the sake of the world. But that vision that Paul then recovers in the Messiah had become a bit obscured and lost among the Jewish people of the day in the first century. And so you can imagine if you're a Gentile who's perhaps got some interest in the things of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the level of exclusion that you experience from that people and from those promises. And that's exactly what Paul's drawing out in verses 11 and 12. You were on the outside of these things. Remember, he says, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, and having no hope and without God in the world. Because Paul believed, as we believe, that there was no hope for the world apart from the hope of the God of Israel. We still affirm that wholeheartedly in the church today. And so he said, yes, the Greeks, they had philosophy. Yes, the Romans, they had the empire. But there was no hope for them. And yes, they had all kinds of God's little G and idols running around. But there was no hope. They were without God, the only God, the God of creation. And therefore, in a dark place. That wasn't the only dimension of brokenness and hostility, though. There was also not just the horizontal dimension, but there was the vertical dimension. The reality that That not just the Gentiles, as Paul would say, but also the Jews were separated from God. There was a brokenness between them and God by virtue of their complicitness in the sin of Adam. Being born into the sinful humanity. 
unable to get out. So that's what Paul says as we looked at last week, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And he includes not just the Gentiles, but the Jews in the midst of that. And as such, then we were in a place of hostility between God and us. He says in verse 3 of chapter 2, by nature, objects of wrath, children of wrath, that we were in a place that didn't have access to the life of God. So this is the position of hostility, of brokenness, of division that Paul is addressing. But he says, obviously, in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been brought near. The mechanism of reconciliation in the brave new world is nothing other than the cross of Jesus Christ. It addresses the horizontal plane. Paul says that he brought peace and made us one. He made one new human being out of the two, out of Jew and Gentile, by abolishing the wall of hostility, the dividing wall that was broken down in his flesh. There are not two groups in this brave new world. There is one. One group in the Messiah. That in Jesus, the age of, of the old covenant, the age of the law, had come to an end. It wasn't that the law was bad, though certainly some of the ways it was being interpreted and used in the first century were not in, in line with God's greater purposes. But it was that the law had come to an end. Romans 10:4, Christ is the end, the telos of the law. And that therefore that which divided, that which brought distinction, that which separated Jew from Gentile was no longer in play, no longer in force. In Galatians 3, he talks about this as, as an intermediary that has, that's purpose had come to an end now that Jesus had come. This was abolished. And as we'll see in a moment, the temple also was redefined, remade. And therefore that dividing wall in a very physical sense between the court of the Gentiles and the inner courts no longer applied. Jesus had come to take away the hostility between the two. And to do that through his death. It addresses the vertical brokenness. Verse 16. That Jesus might reconcile us both, that is Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross. Therefore, killing the hostility. By absorbing it upon himself. By breaking the bondage of sin. By leading into forgiveness of sins. Chapter 1 verse 7. He says that we have the redemption. The forgiveness of our sins through his blood. It's the cross that breaks this hostility. Vertically between humankind. Jew or Gentile. And God himself. Let me just note that the instrument then. So let me go back. Everybody's got a vision of a better world. We started there five or six weeks ago, however long ago. And if our vision of the better world doesn't address the issue of hostility, the issue of division, the issue of violence and injustice, then our vision of the better world is no good. Then technological progress only enables us to be more and more violent. It's not the answer. More often than not, the vision of how that hostility is broken, how the dividedness is broken, is through something, some kind of progress, whether it's education or freedom or technology. Or in Paul's day, it was through the peace of Rome, which was a facade. 
It was a fraud. Because Rome's peace was built upon the shed blood of the innocent people that they conquered and they overcame. But it was the myth that everybody wanted to believe. The question is, a vision of a better world has to have a mechanism for breaking down the hostility, not just between Jew and Gentile, but between uh, Ukrainian and Russian. Muslims and Christians. On and on. And at the center of this text, Paul is saying that the mechanism by which the hostility is abolished and undone is not some will to power. But it's the great God of heaven and earth taking on human form and entering into the world that was broken and going to a Roman cross. It was not him exercising military might. It was him absorbing military might upon himself. Paradoxically and beautifully in the midst of that, establishing then peace, peace between Jew and Gentile, peace between Jew, Gentile, and God. And enabling a new day of peace to come about. So he says that this mechanism of peace, the cross, leads to Jesus, verse 17, declaring peace. He preached peace to you who were far off and peace, peace to those who were near. Because of the cross. I remember reading a story about uh, the prisoners of war caught in Japanese internment camps in the Second World War through the lens of an American who was in that that camp, Ernest Gordon, talking about the fact that the prisoners got hold of a radio and somehow were able to put together what they called a wireless. It's kind of funny how out of context that is today, but they put this together and that they would listen day after day for news of what was going on on the battlefront, what was going on on the front line. And then one day the news comes that the enemy has been defeated and that it's the, the war is over and that peace has been accomplished. And in many ways, this is what Paul, this kind of picture is what Paul is saying happens through Jesus' death and resurrection. That he comes now and proclaims peace to those who are near, the Jewish people. Peace to those who are far off, the Gentiles. And declares that all the collateral damage of the brokenness and the division between peoples. Think of all the refugees. Think of all the wasted talent. Think of all the wasted lives as a result of division and brokenness in the world. All of that is coming to an end. He proclaims peace. And the result of this peace then is one new humanity. Where God actually dwells. This is verses 19 through 22. Where Paul talks about the fact that we who have been brought into the Messiah. Are now forming together a household. A new temple. Not by ourselves. Paul uses this imagery elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 3. But together Jew and Gentile. All of humanity brought together in the Messiah. Now being built up on the foundation of the revelation of the gospel. Paul says in in chapter 3 verse 6. This is the mystery. That the Gentiles are fellow, fellow heirs. Members of the same body. And partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Through the gospel. They've been brought in. We've been brought into one family. One new humanity. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. With Jesus himself as the cornerstone. That stone which becomes the foundation upon which every other stone in that temple, every other stone in that household takes its cue and finds its alignment upon Jesus. But we're now the place that's being built together as the temple. We read from 1 Kings chapter 8 
when Solomon built the glorious temple for Yahweh, that he came and dwelt with his Shekinah glory into the temple. This was the place, according to Israel, this was the place where heaven and earth would meet. This is the place where God would dwell. And think of how holy it was. Only once a year could the high priest go into the holy of holies. And now Paul says radically, that temple has been replaced not by a building made with human hands, but by a building made by the Spirit of God. You and I, Jew and Gentile, in the Messiah. Now the place where God, the holy God of heaven, dwells on earth. Now the place where heaven and earth meet is in you and in me. That humbles us deeply. The result of the end of hostility, the result of the cross of Jesus means that what was a huge part of the brokenness of the world, that is, the alienation and hostility between God and us, has been fundamentally changed in the brave new world. So now God actually dwells among us and in us. Humanity has been united together, not to build the Tower of Babel, as we did in Genesis 11, to find our own significance and security in making a name for ourselves, through whatever advancement or means that we could. But to declare together the grace of the one God as his one people in the Messiah. Showing through our unity, as Paul will go on when he begins to get practical, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And in our holiness... We show forth then to the world the presence of this one God who is making all things new in the Messiah, who's uniting all things in the Messiah. Let me just say one thing by word of practical application. Obviously, I said before that we don't deal as much these days with the Jew-Gentile question like like they did in the first century. But we do deal in a massive way with all kinds of brokenness and division in the church of God. Across social, economic, ethnic lines, denominational lines, and on and on. And a huge part of what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2, and why he gets there when he gets to the exhortation in chapter 4, is he's saying, look, if you live in such a way in this life, in this world, To be divided from one another. You're denying the reality of the gospel. That God has brought all things together in Jesus. Which is just to say one word of practical application. Of this result of the hostility being broken. Horizontally and vertically. Is to call us to be people. Who express the unity of the church. Across as many lines as possible. To dig into that. To be a part of that in whatever way that we can. And to be a people who make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers within the very broken temple 
of the church of the 21st century. We build this way. The hostility has ended at the cross. We are being built together as a temple. The spirit dwells in us. Now we go and we live. If you're sitting here tonight and there's somebody in this room with whom you are not reconciled, this message pertains to you. This is a call to be united as the one holy people of the God who is making all things new. Amen.